The magazine Race Trader is the theoretical organ of this academic cult with the motto, Treason to Whiteness is Loyalty to Humanity. According to race trader intellectuals, whiteness is the principal scourge of mankind. Consequently, the key to solving the social problems of our age is to abolish the white race. This new racism expresses itself with slogans lifted right out of the radical 1960s. The abolition of whiteness must be accomplished by any means necessary. To underscore that the slogan means exactly what it says, the editors of Race Trader have explicitly embraced the military strategy of American neo-Nazis and the militia movement in calling for a John Brown-style insurrection that would trigger a second American Civil War and destroy the symbolic order of whiteness. An anthology of the first five years of Race Trader, for example, has been published by a prestigious, academic-oriented publishing house. Its jacket features praise by a prestigious Harvard professor, Cornel West, who writes, Race Trader is the most visionary, courageous journal in America. Alright, you guys ready to go? Yep. Ready to roll. Cool, cool. Alright, I'm here with... I'm hearing a lot of background noise now. Gears. Oh, I am sorry, sorry, sorry. What was that? Uh, printer. Okay. Just, I will turn that off. What are you printing? Dual Power Project book uh, outline that I made with Joel Olson and uh, Noel back in 2007. Oh, that's great. Actually, this is something I definitely need to, to ask about. Uh Right. I, I was going to bring it up right away with uh, yeah. Roe versus Wade. Cool. So we know what we have to look forward to. Uh, welcome to the Antifada. We've got two guests today to talk about a, a new book, um, Treason to Whiteness is Loyalty to Humanity by Noel Ignatayev. It's a collection of his essays. Uh, I just read the whole thing. It's a, it's a great read. Fascinating. Learned a lot from it. Um, one of the great... Marxist thinker is a great writer on race and revolutionary politics in the United States. And uh, we've talked about him a lot on the show, but we've never talked too much specifically about his work. Um, and this is the, a great overview. So uh, that's what we'll be doing today. Uh, and I have two editors of the book here. Uh, would you like to introduce yourselves? You can you can start, Jana. Ladies first. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm Jana Corti. Really excited and happy to be back on the show. I missed you, Andy. Missed you um, too. And yeah, just really excited to talk about this book uh, and some of Noel's political legacy and what it means for a new generation of race traders and revolutionaries today. Yeah, I'm. Uh, my name is Geert Dont, and I am. Uh, thank you for having us. I'm excited about uh, this book as well, and especially that this book will create new interest for a newer generation of activists who can deal with Noel, even though Noel Ignatiev died, uh, and they can still deal with his work and, and, and reason with him through uh, his writings. And so um, I am a professor of economics at John Jay College at the City University of New York, 
and I have uh, Noel died in the f- November 2019, but in the fall of 2018, uh, we co-taught a class together, and the idea was to teach a class around uh, dual power, and uh, so that was really fun. And previously, uh, when I was a graduate student, I also taught as an uh, adjunct at Mass College of Arts uh, in his um, uh, department uh, there with, uh, on his invitation for a year. And that was also really fun, something I can talk about as well. And uh, yeah, so I'm excited to be here. Thank you. I just do want to mention uh, before uh, I forget that the two of us, uh, for the list, for your listeners, uh, are also part of the last political project that Noel Ignatieff started, which was the Heartcrackers Chronicles of Everyday Life, and we are missing our third wonderful co-editor, Jared Shanahan, who edited the book and is also on the editorial board of Heartcrackers. So, the three of us knew Noel uh, personally, politically, um, and you know. Uh, at least Geard and I will be more than happy to talk with you a bit today about the book. But Jared was on two times in the last month, so I think uh, yeah. all our listeners are totally <laughs> sick of him. They- no more Jared. <laughs> um, so, yeah, before we get into Noel, I was just curious about your feelings about the uh, ruling on Friday, Roe versus Wade being overturned. We had a little bit of time to, you know, when Trump was elected, really, we saw it coming. And so it just kind of happened in slow motion. And then, you know, last month we got the leak that it was coming, you know, early May. We heard about this, May 2nd, actually. And then, uh, you know, two months to prepare. And what are your thoughts on how it went and where we're headed? Yeah, absolutely agree, Andy. I think, you know, even though it was coming down the pipeline, we saw it, you know, the the the, the leaks that happened a month prior to the ruling, it still feels really jarring and upsetting um, in many ways. Um, you know, even though Roe v. Wade provided, you know, at best minimal constitutional protections, even with Roe v. Wade, so many states had uh, abortion restrictions, bans, uh, there were so many challenges to many women seeking abortions. Um, I remember even living in the in in Tennessee, and and you know it was like in neighboring states, it was really difficult. Women were still crossing state lines, right? Um, the Mississippi case, which ultimately led to Roe v. Wade being overturned, being an aspect of just kind of how Roe v. Wade did not in many ways apply to Southern states. It just feels like really terrible still. Um, and I actually just watched The James on HBO, uh, which I think is a really wonderful documentary that everyone should watch. Uh, really this firsthand account of women at the center of Jane, which was a clandestine Chicago group that helped uh, women obtain uh, abortions in the 60s and 70s when it was considered a crime in Illinois and other states as well. So yeah, I think lots to discuss in terms of, um, you know, uh, what will happen now in terms of uh, the struggle for abortion and reproductive rights? It's an interesting moment. Uh, my first thoughts went back to uh, the Love and Rage Revolutionary Anarchist Federation. Uh, they did a bunch of stuff around open race, Operation Rescue. And the first thing is it's just awful, uh, mostly for you know uh, uh, working class women who will lose access to, in many places, who will lose access to their reproductive freedom, which is a you know a human right, um, and that's awful. Um, 
I thought about uh, the Love and Rage Revolution Anarchist Federation and their uh, uh, their fights against Operation Rescue and their slogan, uh, Operation Rescue, come to our town, we'll lock you in a church and burn the fucker down. And, um, you know, or, or life begins at insurrection. Uh, we approach shows and we riot. And, you know, those kind of slogans they developed and the, and the activism they had around uh, reproductive freedom, uh, we, because that, you know, for part of my my own activism with the anti-globalization movement or other other parts, we never had really had to deal with this directly in a way that will now come to a forefront of new kind of um, you know a cr- new crisis that has really emerged uh, and and you know through all kinds of agitation and organizing among the right wing, you know when you know 40, 50 years ago when abortion wasn't controversial. And so it's, you know, it's interesting to think about that kind of process of how they did this as well. And, uh, you know, but also about what we will do. And um, I saw that in my email, I got an email from PM Press, and it said, uh, it was about, um, you know, just said, Fox CODIS, we're doing it anyway. And, you know, it was about uh, information about shout your abortion. And I think those kind of one of my favorite uh, signs that I saw at some of the protests that erupted throughout the country was abort the court. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, really young people holding those signs. So I thought that was great. I agree, Geared. I mean, this is like certainly an attack on like working class women, uh, working class women of color who are not going to be able to afford to have abortions across state lines, right? Because many states will not criminalize it, but many others will, right? Um, so I think th- that issue of affordability, the issue of criminalization um, of people yeah, being jailed for this, um, I just think it's crazy. It kind of goes back uh, to just where Roe v. Wade comes out of, which was this like poor single woman in Texas who was the main plaintiff, uh, Norma McCorvey. Um, and, you know, here we are 50 years later, you know, it's not to say only, you know, it could be all blamed on Texas, but you know there was like a very strong anti-abortion movement that was has been taking root in Texas for the past four decades in other states as well. We also know there's kind of like this very you know um, like far right aspect Republican Party that's been pushing you know uh, this attack for a very long time. And I, I heard Clarence Thomas say that you know they're basically not going to stop here. Um, that they're going to try to revisit other, you know, uh, decisions, right, around contraceptives, uh, same-sex marriage, right? All of, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, these rights, uh, you know, that we're going to kind of see consistently being rolled back. And I think this is a really important moment because I think, Geard, you alluded to this saying, like, voting is not the solution. And unfortunately, like, this is what the liberals are pushing, right? It's uh, I got so many emails by saying like, you know, push your elected politicians to challenge this. Uh, you know, this is why we need to vote Democrats in office. My favorite one was uh, so many people on Facebook. I don't know if you guys saw this saying that had clear Hillary won in 2016, this would not have happened, <laughs> right? Um, so I think that's kind of not, you know, liberals are not gonna save us. I mean. At the press conference on Friday, like, what did Nancy Pelosi do? She read a damn poem uh, talking about we hope the Supreme Court will open its eyes. Uh, the House Democrats were singing God Bless America as protesters chanted in the background. Like, what an apocalyptic scene, you know? 
I mean, it strikes me as the right has this almost like a revolutionary base. For sure. And for a long time, the Republican politicians sort of wanted to keep it stable, but a way to like kind of concede and release pressure in like the, you know, the, the insanity of their base was to just put in more and more judges until now we have the point where all of their revolutionary desires or reactionary desires are like at hand in the Supreme court. And essentially they can start reshaping some very basic things about American society uh, just with this majority that is going to be here for, you know, what, 20, 40 years. So really the only reaction you can have, the only reasonable reaction you can have is, well, either the liberals need to get a little bit revolutionary themselves and ignore the court or pack the court, um, or just like, you know, this avenue of checks and balances is now broken. Like it's clearly broken. And so it is heartening to see, you know, the march I went to in New York was seemed like the same kind of people that came out to the, the women's marches. Um, mostly largely white, middle-class students, young people. But the rhetoric was like, yeah, like a lot of people saying, more or less, fuck the Supreme Court, you know, burn it down. People have been sharing memes about, like, the addresses of the judges and stuff like that. And on one hand, that's a little bit annoying because I don't think any of these people are actually going to do anything like that. So it's like maybe you're you're comforting yourself with this empty threat. And even if you did, it wouldn't really change things uh, because... I think like the Democrats would just replace them with the same kind of judge, unfortunately. Um, But on the other hand, I think people are opening up their eyes to the the fact that, uh, you know, these institutions are not are not valid, even when they did have a slim uh, conservative majority instead of a large conservative majority. So in a way, I think that's um, that's maybe the only silver lining is that it is starting to wake up people that we can't just we can't just vote. It didn't work. Right. I hope yeah. I hope this is true. I mean the I really like the slogan abort the court. Uh you know, but it's the they're doing all the things the court is doing. Uh I forget what all the stuff they've already done, but it's you know, the the gun law uh and gun re- you know, it's all the things liberals hate. Uh you know, but it's like the legitimacy of the court, how much was it questioned after the court? That was appointed by Republicans, appointed George Bush as president instead of Al Gore. That was, uh, you know, a really important, massive kind of court uh, decision. And, you know, the legitimacy of the court is still there uh, somewhat, even though, you know, maybe with, with Trump being so political about his nominees and uh and and so much hatred uh from the liberals and progressive to to those uh appointees it you know maybe the the court has lost a lot of its legitimacy as an april constitution which it's not and you know if any kind of state institution of official society loses legitimacy that's also not necessarily a bad thing yeah i mean i do think that obviously the democrats are doing everything they can from reading poems to singing to, I think Biden made a speech about how he's going to urge Congress to make Roe v. Wade a federal law. And I'm like, yeah, good luck with that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I think there is just a general sense that, you know, people are feeling that, you know, the Democrats are kind of out of touch with the reality of what has happened. Um, I think anybody that has watched the Handmaiden's Tale <laughs> series on Hulu is like, holy crap, this is coming to life. Um, so, yeah, I think there is, you know, 
it's definitely an interesting moment. Um, and I don't know, I, I, watching that documentary on the Janes, I found it really, uh, really kind of inspiring, you know, that or these ordinary group of women, you know, kind of just started to essentially form like, you know, mutual aid networks to, you know, to, to share information on abortions and to eventually perform abortions themselves, right? Um, so I wonder if we're going to kind of see a lot of that. One fear I do have is that, um, you know, the liberals are going to push like for people to start putting pressure on local politicians, right? Because we know that now abortion will become more of a state issue and it will vary from state to state. state. So, you know, I think that's part of what worries me too, is that now a lot of like the, the politics around voting is going to be around like, you know, holding your state representatives accountable, you know, so I just worry that some of those fights will be like these legal fights. But also, I could also see, you know, especially in southern states, activists and continuing the work they've been doing, right, um, which is now going to be much more of a challenge. Because I think, I forget how many states it's like um, have trigger laws, right? So 13 states have trigger laws that make the, the abortion bans go in immediately, right? If not right now, I think within 30 days. So, you know, it's it's a crazy time. But I think also, uh, as Jana, I mentioned earlier about the criminalization of, uh, there's going to be lots of laws created about the enforcement of this because uh, abortion is more and more, if, you know, uh, moving away from surgical to, uh, mm -hmm. to yeah. taking pills. Non-surgical. Mm -hmm. Non-surgical. And uh, so those can be mailed. They can be, you know, distributed in various ways. And uh, so I think that that means that people don't necessarily have to travel. And there will be lots of kind of ways how, how this will be done. But then also there will be, uh, I, I assume there will be all kinds of laws that will be criminalizing that kind of behavior and what are what are they going to do? Uh, you know, you know, they're going to convict people for murder or you know something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't put it past some of these Republicans who already have come up with some of those laws and you know, kind of waiting for the right moment. Um, I think in many states, like the the right wing anti abortion movement organizations are like pretty strong. Um, so. Yeah, I'm sure they will be drafting a lot of the lo those laws. But yeah, that's a good point. It, you know, how are they going to regulate everything? Um, and criminalize it. And it's also one of, I just wanted to say, it's like one of the most, like Roe v. Wade is like one of the more like popular <laughs> laws, right? It was like, that's another thing. It's like most people are actually in support of Roe v. Wade existing. So when this happened, I think, you know, it kind of created more, um, I was reading a lot of the international reactions to Roe v. Wade. Um, and I think that's also really important, right? Because when Roe v. Wade first happened in 1973, it did kind of kick off a series of legislations like uh, globally, right? Like Italy, other countries started loosening their own restrictions on abortions. So now um, a lot of like international activists are kind of, you know, looking at this not only as an American issue, right? But saying like, okay, globally, reproductive rights is kind of coming under attack as we see this uh, you know, like right wing movement growing, uh, you know, you know, all of this. So, yeah, I wonder, you know, I think it's important to kind of look at it also like globally, not just the U.S., you know. One of the reasons I'm really excited about this book is that uh, we can 
we can read Noel's writings about all kinds of different things, but Noel was a very particular kind of revolutionary. And um, uh, and so even though he never wrote about abortion or Roe versus Wade, in there he did speak a lot about revolution, revolutionary strategy and uh, and dual power and so on. And the way he described, uh, the way he saw it, there's always there's always two options. Uh, one option is to, uh, you know, to uh, look for reform, and the other one is to go for a strategy for revolution. And there's always a, there's a side you can try to do, which is uh, re-legitimizes and re-supports and recreates uh, towards solutions towards the state and official society and those that, that go against it. And he was always on the side for going against uh, those in power, against uh, the kind of reform uh, or against electoral politics. He really hated electoral politics. Uh, he said that one time he voted one time and he really regretted it immediately uh, because that uh, he was a local politician and he was uh he he had um he you know it, it was somewhere in boston and he was convinced by a friend to vote for, vote for this person so he said fine i'll go vote for this local politician and immediately they did something uh you know fucked up and so he said now see now i'm to blame if i had been with most people and not voted <laughs> i wouldn't have to be to blame for what these what these assholes in power do and so um you know, he never saw any he uh, hope in the electoral uh, the electoral system, and uh, so he always argued that we always need to stay away from gradual seizure of power. We need to go. You know, we don't need to just create alternative institutions. We you know we need to look for a, a kind of a dual power strategy, which he called it, which is conflict and struggle and civil war. And not um, not just reform. So I, he never addressed this that the parts about abortion, but new things come up and new crises crises always emerge. And within these new crises, it will be the task of re, you know revolutionaries to always um, you know these kind of dual power situations they emerge and arise spontaneously within the working class, and these these are always in parts of conflict. And uh, the, the, for Noel, the task of revolution is to recognize and extend these moments of dual power, and uh, and they can be up there. In they emerge in all kinds of crises. Uh, so one of his favorite sl slogan uh, was the old uh, IWW slogan in the shell of the old, and that's like always what he saw. And I think uh, within these crises of uh, or that, that emerge around abortion, I think we can read Noel and think about how he talked about dual power and think about new solutions and try to look for and extend those uh, creative struggles that people that, that emerge instead of uh, looking for reform and, you know, such as electoral politics. Yeah. And he, he was, uh, that, that saying is a, a new world emerging in the shell of the old. And he was really uh, radicalized in terms of the kind of politics he would, he would come to take on for the rest of his life. In the early and the mid 60s, like many people at that time, seeing the civil rights movement and then eventually moving into the debates around in SDS around the question of the questions of black leadership and black struggle and white supremacy. And 
And this is where he really became, you know, the Noel that we know today with uh, his the essay Black Worker, White Worker with Ted Allen, and then uh, an essay with a, a great, great Leninist name, classic Leninist name. Without a science of navigation, we cannot sail in stormy seas. How could you be a young Leninist in SDS and not want to read that essay and and then follow whoever wrote it and call him the navigator, right? That just screams, <laughs> this is your leader. Um, so why don't we talk really briefly about what that essay was, what, what he was trying to do with those essays in the late 60s. So I think it's interesting and important, and I, I think maybe Noel would, <laughs> would, would judge me from, uh, from wherever he is if I said this. But you know, Noel was a Stalinist until 1968, which was kind of pretty late in the game. Um, but having said that, he had a very strong critique uh, that he had been, um, you know, writing about for a while, which uh, was the critique of white skin privilege. So in 1967, he co-authored The White Blind Spot with uh, his mentor, Ted Allen. Um, and it was really it was really kind of that essay um, and others like the learn the lessons of U.S. history uh the, the the essay that you mentioned andy on uh without the science of navigation where he's kind of really trying to understand what is the relationship of radical you know um anti-capitalist movements what is the relationship that they will have to um not only the struggle for human human liberation but wh what role does does race play in all of that right and I think it's important to keep in mind that I think the old Communist Party line, old Communist Party always had this kind of interesting relationship to, you know, to the so-called black question, to the so-called woman question, right? So I think um, a lot of kind of Noel's critique of that comes also from his experience and the fact that he was a red diaper baby, right? So he was very different from a lot of act other activists in the 1960s who may have come to politics through like university, through, you know, going to college, right? Um, I mean, his his family background was, uh, you know, his parents belonged to the Communist Party, right? They were working class uh, Russian Jewish immigrants. So I think that's kind of really uh, a big part of it. So I think um, from what I kind of take from that era, uh, and Geert, you'll feel free to jump in, is that, you know, Students for Democratic Society was very supportive, obviously, of the anti-war effort, uh, they had a critique of anti-imperialism, right? Uh, but they didn't necessarily see race and whiteness as central to working class struggles at home, right? And for Ignatieff, for Ted Allen, for Harry Hayward, who you know who would go on to to split, um, to you know to kind of create splits, uh, and because of their critique was that for them, white supremacy was a really important undertaking for any would-be revolutionary, revolutionary moment or revolutionary movement, right? Uh, Ignatieff in that white blind spot with Ted Allen really argues that, and he would argue this for the rest of his life, was that white supremacy was really this deal between the exploiters and the part of the exploited at the expense of the rest of the exploited, right? He argued that this was the original sweetheart's deal uh, which, of course, they developed a lot from, you know, Du Bois' understanding of um, the um, the the impact that whiteness had on the white workers. So I think for him, it was that the labor movement, the left movements, did not uh, did not willingly challenge white supremacy enough, right? 
Uh, and most importantly, the ending of white supremacy would not be, uh, you know, a disadvantage to the real interests of the to the white workers, right? I mean, for him, for him, ending white supremacy was important to white workers. Uh, it was their white skin privilege held them uh, would would help them, you know, what what under capitalism by the boss and what foreclosed any possibility of solidarity with black and non-white workers. Noel is, was different from most of the SD, other SDS uh, leaders at that time. Let me go back a little bit. Uh, so Noel always uh, told me um, that after he graduated high school in the late, you know, he was uh, he has been an activist or pol a political person and leading a political life his whole life since he was a teenager when he joined the uh, Communist Party. And uh, and so when he was finished high school, uh, he had uh, two choices. And he said uh, he, had to go, he could go to UPenn or he could go to Tulane University in, in New Orleans. And he always thought, like, if I had gone to Tulane, my life would be totally different. And... Um, but he went to UPenn and one summer, uh, he had a summer job working in a factory and he decided not to go back and just, uh, keep working in factories. And he was working in a factory in Philly and then he came to, uh, New York. So he's been working in factories. Uh, he was, you know, since starting in 1961 or at least that's the, uh, or maybe a little bit earlier. Uh, so he was not just a student when SDS emerged, he was a, a factory worker, in, uh, uh, in, you know, with, within uh, the Communist Party at first, but then he was with this uh, reform group, uh, you know, the uh, that that emerged. Uh, but that was a, they were because the Communist Party was losing some of its Stalinism, and it was a more Stalinist. So up, up until sixty-eight or sixty-nine or so, he was very Stalinist in that sense. But he he always talked about how he didn't go through a period of, you know, he rejected Stalinism for whatever you want to call it, uh, ultra leftism, more kind of a anarchist influence or uh, autonomous Marxist or what, whatever you want to call that tradition uh, without going through a period of Trotskyism, he said. Uh, and so he, uh, so that happened in the late 60s and, you know, uh, through his meetings with CLR James, so he was uh, he was older than most SDS people. So he was at some point he moved, you know, from Philadelphia. He lived in uh, in New York for a while uh, in the sixties, and there was this wonderful article he at one point wrote about Smith and Ninth, uh, which is a subway stop in uh, in Brooklyn, because he would get off there to work at a factory. Uh, near there, you know, in 65 or, or 66 or something like that. And uh, which is not uh, not included in the in the essay, but you can find it on his PM Press blog if you search for it. Uh, and um, and uh, but he was involved with this kind of factory work. And then he moved to Chicago and was asked to join when, you know, towards the end when SDS was uh, erupting. Uh, and into different factions. So he was involved with, you know, one of the splits of the splits uh, when he was part of the SAS, uh, SDS leadership when it was falling apart. And so I think some of those writings 
uh, are about those debates uh, within uh, SDS and uh, and and the kind of new left around it. It was a you know it was a very intellectually stimulating act you know active time. Um, yeah, and if I could just try to summarize it up um, pretty quickly, uh, he was very impressed that SDS was this this mass organization, mostly white organization, that was taking uh, black liberation struggles very seriously and anti imperialism very seriously, which are you know these are things that he believed in. But he was worried that this um, this weatherman tendency that had emerged, it had not gone, you know, uh, to its armed struggle phase yet and gone underground yet. It had just released its first manifesto, um, which is you uh, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. And so he's responding to that um, with this essay with, you know, a, kind of a Leninist rejoinder that, oh, actually you do. You need a, a navigator. And uh, but really, I think the point of the essay um as it's like sort of summed up in the excerpt in the book is that uh, uh, we could, we could say that like the, um, uh, the, the weatherman line is that the American worker, especially the American white worker is uh, the exploiter of the entire world and has this privilege of, um, of ex- you know, basically everything that the white worker owns is the, the pro- through the process of exploitation of the whole world. And as a result, they will just, they just will not be, be revolutionary um, it was. It might be in their long-term interest to be revolutionary, but uh, for the short term, they will be, you know, imperialist and racist. And so, yeah. um, he's he's actually arguing that um, something that he I think is consistent throughout the rest of his his life uh, is that it is in the short-term interest of white workers to um, unite with their black coworkers, and um, and this was something that was uh, sort of unorthodox at the time yeah. uh, in, in the left, even the new left. Um, so, so why was it, why was it in white workers interest at that point? Or uh, why does it continue to be in the working class interest uh, in the short term to, uh, to abolish whiteness essentially, or abolish white pr- privilege? Yeah. But Noel would always argue that uh, any, across, you know, from the sixties to uh, his death, uh, you know, for this is this is of over a fifty year period. He was consistent with this uh, that he that he thought uh, white workers can be revolutionary uh, because they don't benefit. They're not the exploiters. Uh, they're also exploited, and so they get some benefits from you know the original sweetheart deal, as he would sometimes call it, where you know race or the white race becomes. It is a cross-class alliance between uh, those workers uh, who are so-called white and align themselves with uh, the the capitalist class um, in order to get some benefits for, for uh, from from the rest of the working class, uh, but uh, that uh, they are still exploited, um, and so there's always uh, the potential that exists there to. Um, you know, uh, f- f- the revolution potential that's always there. And so I think that's the main difference between that he had with the weathermen, you know, at that time or with like settlers in Sakai in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, in that essay, actually, it's so good. He kind of like critiques um, how much like the weathermen actually understand Lenin. <laughs> he had 
you know, we only took short excerpts because it's a very long essay that appears in the book, but obviously we encourage people to read it in its entirety. But you know, there's a part where he's like, yeah, you know, the weather under, the, the weathermen are basically using Lenin, Lenin to argue that, you know, white working class, basically, as you said, Andy, just has crazy privileges that are derived from imperialism. So they're not gonna be the ones to struggle against uh, imperialism because they really benefit from it, right? Um, so in that Ignatiev talks about, yeah, that the material benefits are real to some degree, but in their day-to-day -day lives, uh, workers are harmed by, by, um, by the system of white supremacy. They are harmed by when, you know, bosses pit workers against each other in the division of labor. Um, and it's something he argues that they cannot readily often see, obviously at times, right? Uh, but there, there's moments that they can't see it. And I think his um, and his other comrades work in STO, right, was part of that, like making white workers see that at the point of production, right, in the day-to-day -day work lives in a way that it's not about lecturing people or, you know, making them feel guilty for um, their white skin privilege, but is making them see uh, an alternative, right? Um, and I think here Ignatiev kind of also differs a lot from Ted Allen, right? Who was his political mentor. Um, you know, Ted, uh, Ted Allen's argument was that whiteness uh, was a tool that the ruling class used to divide workers. Um, and Ignatiev in many ways, while supportive of that, also departs from that, right? So by the time he writes How the Irish Became White in 1994, that's published in 1994, he says that yes, you know, while whiteness is kind of to some degree a tool of the ruling class, it's also a political choice that, you know, the Irish made, uh, you know, they kind of calculated the cost, right? He, Ignatiev, one thing I always took from Noel was that, you know, workers were not are not dumb. They are very aware of the cost. They're always calculating the costs. They're always calculating their moves and what's gonna be more beneficial to them to some degree, right? Uh, so, you know, he kind of argues that in many ways, whiteness was also a choice, right? It wasn't something that was just pushed on workers and they just like blindly take part in it, right? It's it's a choice they make day in and day out because they realize that there are some benefits to whiteness. Uh, I mean, to you know, there's some material benefits that are tied to white skin privilege. Um, and I think his work and STO was to have white workers challenge this in their day-to-day -day work lives, which, you know, oftentimes proved really difficult. Um, but I think that was kind of a really important part of um, those STO years, especially. Yeah. What are some examples of uh, like, uh, you know, so he's, he's got this sort of industrial phase where he's actually in the factory testing this out in real time. Mm -hmm. And then um, we'll, we'll get later to, to race trader where he talks more about uh uh, white abolition as like more of a cultural practice, but um, what are some examples of how white workers can challenge white skin privilege in in a factory setting or in a workplace setting? Yeah, um, so I want to. I, I know that you know we first of all we divided uh, the reader into four parts, and part two covers a lot of those SEO years. Um, and however, I would say Noel's memoir, which is really a novel. Uh, written about his experiences working in Chicago uh, steel, uh, steel Chicago um, kind of gets at a lot of that. Um, but I would say that there is like those day-to-day -day 
so there's a way in which the color line works day to day, right? So in factories in the 60s and 70s, that would have been, you know, uh, segregated showers, right? This kind of, or like these informal, an informal culture about who you should sit with at lunch, who you should talk with, who you should fraternize with, right? And if you were a white work, uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't written down, right? But it was part of the informal way in which the color line operated in factories, right? So um, in that in that novel and memoir, Noel talks about how, you know, he made it a point to not shower with white workers, right? But to shower where black, black workers showered, to eat with black workers, right? Uh, Dave Rainey in his uh, memoir, who was a fellow STO comrade in his co in memoir, uh, Dying on the Factory Floor, uh, Living and Dying on the Factory Floor, similarly talks about kind of these like very well thought about choices, about where to sit, uh, how to attempt to build relationships with black workers, when again, the color line and the way it operated made those things seem, you know, seem kind of crazy to a lot of uh, to a lot of white workers. One example I had, uh, and he actually talks about this in um, in in a, in an essay we include called "Worker Radicals." Uh, at the time, he's employed at the international company, company tractor in Chicago as a tool and die maker. Um, so. In the essay, he talks about how, you know, as a worker there, the core local union leadership was part of the UAW. And there was a caucus that was formed by black workers within the union, um, you know, to talk about discrimination, right? Um, and they introduced a resolution that, you know, tried to have an open discussion among union, the union leadership and union workers about how black workers were really being kept out of jobs in the skilled trades, right? And there were rampant discrimination in the skilled trades, which were jobs reserved for white workers. So I think in the essay, Noel talks about, you know, uh, speaking in support of this, right? And speaking on, you know, saying as a white man, as a white worker, like I support, um, you know, I, I support us fighting discriminations in the skilled trades and we should make uh, employment in the skilled trades, half black, half white, this is the only way we're going to fight the bosses, right? And I think here the retaliation is really interesting, right? White skilled workers, you know, were not like hugging Noel after that talk, right? Um, they didn't like it. They distanced themselves from him. He talks about how he found, um, I think, a swastika uh, when he goes back to, I think it was his locker, right? It was like very public, so there, he he says that the white workers more were more united in their hatred of Noel in that moment mm. than of any other issue, right? Um, and I think this is an example to show that often this like social democratic pro union black and white united fight slogan um, is too facile, right? Like uh, Noel was very clear that um, the struggle against white supremacy was not a simple struggle. Uh, it was a struggle that, you know, could not concede to white workers' racism, right? It was not about, like, let's struggle around what white workers think is important, then include black workers, right? It was always like, no, let's address the elephant in the room. Let's address whiteness and, uh, and white supremacy, even though that's going to be very, very difficult. Yeah, I think that's really right. And I think it's uh, in throughout the essays in... Uh you know, in that part three uh, or part two, 
with STO, you can really see those uh, those things come through live to the shop floor stuff. And I think also as uh, as Jana mentioned, uh, Noel Ignati of Acceptable Men, uh, this memoir published by Charles H. Kerr, um, which was published last year, um, he had just emailed the draft uh, to a few people. It was just on my printer when I got the news that uh, um, he had gone to the hospital. And um, so we were able to publish this book, you know, afterwards. But it's a, it's a wonderful memoir of stories of his life working in, uh, in you know, in the factory, um, in, in these factories. And, it, and it's, uh, and so, you know, one example he gives in, in some of the things, another example that you're asking for is it's like the union operates on seniority. And he thought that the seniority system was a complicated uh, way uh, to, re, you know, reproduce white supremacy within within the factory, and um, and so he thought, oh, if we gotta fight against the seniority system, and uh, and there's like examples like this, uh, you know, because I think he he worked, you know, in factories roughly between 1961 and 1983 or so. And, you know, he, but there's also really good examples in, in, in the various stories uh, that he, that he writes. uh, Some of them are in the, in the book, some of his blog in the, you know, in, in the novel about uh, how, and I think also really once about Celar James in part four, where he talks about uh, dual power is the key to revolutionary strategy, uh, where he talks um, about uh, the worldview of C.L.R. James and, and in the modern politics. These are introductions to P.M. Press books that he wrote. They are actually originally written for something slightly different as well, but I'll get to that later. But uh, I think it's uh, there's examples there of um, how he would, you know, uh, view uh the the particular struggles for daily life but also about how um you know the workers uh had so much power in those plans that they couldn't get a grain of work anymore from the workers that they basically had to shut the factories down uh and close them down and move them because they couldn't get no more work from the american worker And there's lots of stories about those things in there as well. Uh, and, you know, another really great insight of Noel uh, is uh, it's expressed in his essay, um, which I had only seen in this reader. Uh, uh, I think it's called um, On the Backwards Worker. And it, it, it says, yes. it's very short, and it says, there's this view on the left that workers often act in their self-interest and they need uh, proper education or proper leadership um, to understand what is in their best interest. And he says, basically, in every situation, you can see the opposite. Uh, if you, for example, see workers electing a left-wing leadership, and then that causes uh, management to be harder on the workers in general as a way of suppressing this left-wing sentiment, then they're likely to elect a more right-wing leadership um, in the next election because it will make their material conditions easier. Um, and so, in a sense, they made the correct decisions for themselves. And he relates this um, in all kinds of occasion, uh, uh, situations throughout the American history uh, leading up to 
the general strike of uh, slaves in the American South yeah. during the Civil War, which is really a you know a central theme in his work, uh, which is that we can see in the way the people, especially uh, slaves and abolitionists, behaved around the Civil War, a model for what a revolution could look like today. Um, yeah. And in the meantime, you know, not just chastising people for being ignorant or stupid or racist, but understanding the material basis for these things and the material basis that could come about that will let people act in a revolutionary way. Yeah. And I think that's, um, that's really important too, because I think what Noel, in that, in that critique uh, that you were mentioning, Andy, um, Noel is also very critical of the unions who cannot see the potential revolutionary seeds in the day-to-day activities of workers, Right. Um, you know, again, for many of the union leadership or the radical groups or the radicals that joined the factories like Noel did in the 60s and 70s, you know, it was that amazing pamphlet and leaflet that was going to stir, you know, in in the workers revolutionary sentiment, right, and was going to bring about revolution. It was that leaflet and that pamphlet that was going to do that work, right? Whereas Noel, um, you know, because of how much he was shaped by Cyril James um, and other other revolutionaries, he actually believed that, you know, socialist communist society was not going to fall from the sky or come from a pamphlet, but it was going to come from the self-activity of workers, right? Uh, very much uh, shaped by Cyril James. But in that way, he saw that in a way that, that union, uh, union leaders did not, right? There's a famous scene actually in the memoir where I think he goes to one of the union leaders uh, and, you know, he asks about, you know, any revolutionary activity or any activity that the workers are partaking that may be worthwhile to, to look into. And the union leader is like, no, there is no activity in this factory. Right. And then Noel kind of goes on about all the activities that he saw in the day-to-day lives of workers who refused to do the work that they were being paid terribly for, that they were risking their lives for and how they spend their days trying to not work, right? And trying to instead create uh, kind of community spaces where they could laugh, they could joke, they could play cards, they could cook, they could talk about life, right? Um, and he argued that it was in that those daily activities that also once, uh, you know, once understanding of of race, of you know, that that white workers' consciousness could even be contested and debated, right? Um, it wasn't going to be by being lectured to. There's a really great essay, uh, which you can find in, um, we, after Noel died, um, uh, we put together a special issue about Noel and a tribute to Noel uh, of Heartcrackers. And it's the special issue, the spring 2021 special issue. And in there is an article uh, a memoir by Gary Fields uh, called um, No Condescending Saviors, a personal tribute. And Gary Fields met, was in a different left group that went into the factories and taught Noel as just a regular worker. And he describes working with Noel and trying to recruit him to different things. And, you know, what actually ends up happening is Gary Fields leaves the groups he's in. Um, and, uh, but, it's a it's a wonderful story also about uh, uh, how they were working in the workplace, but also 
about Noel's approach to how he would act as a revolutionary in, in you know, in in the uh, you know in the factory. Yeah. Any um any other things about uh, Noel you'd like to talk about, John, before we go? Um, I was going to say, I, I think this book. It, it kind of ties back to we started this discussion talking a little bit about just one other institution, American uh, political life being slowly delegitimized uh, or fast, uh, the Supreme Court, right? So I think we have, you know, we've been living through kind of this period of, um, you know, of some heightened struggles, right? Between at least for our generation, right? Like, you know, um, Occupy, No Dapple, uh, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd Rebellion specifically, uh, I don't know, hopefully more protests and and good stuff uh, against the this overturning of Roe v. Wade. So I do think Noel's politics provide a really important um, way, well, for, for new generations to kind of really, to really engage his politics, to look beyond, um, I think, sometimes like both the social democratic horizon that's kind of constantly in our face, right? Of people trying to reform and tweak the system to make it better, right? Um, I think Noel kind of comes comes at it from a very different and more refreshing perspective, right? He, you know, he is, I think he would be really excited uh, for all kinds of uh, activism and political work that happens that's challenging the system, that's challenging the institutions, right? He would look at abolitionists. He would look at, I don't know, mutual care networks that are going to come out of this Roe v. Wade uh, ruling. And, you know, he would constantly question and say, well, are you going to exist on the margins of capitalist society? Is that what you want to do, right? Do you want to fund one more transform justice collective and exist at the margin of society? Or do you want to take power, right? And, and come up with institutions that are going to create power that's going to challenge the existing social order, right? That's going to help, um, you know, create a new society, right? And, um, and I think that's why we chose to end this reader with that section on dual power, because we think those conversations are really missing a lot from um, the political debates about this current moment. Right. Um, and I think for Noel, um, a lot of what what happens politically rests on this question of dual power. Right. So are these alternative institutions that, you know, some of us are partaking in or trying to build going to exist, coexist with capitalism or are they going to build, you know, dual power to challenge capitalism and to do away uh, with capitalist institutions and, you know, in, and come up with new ones, right? Um, so I think that's a kind of really important question. And then the second thing, I think, again, the focus on the revolutionary tradition of the United States, right? I, it, it's really bizarre, I think, sometimes to see, like, so many people look to revolutionary traditions of so many other countries, right, and Europe, when, you know, like, we had a really important like we had really important revolutionary movements in the United States, right? And I think Noel brings us back to that, right? The Civil War, um, to the fact that while there were gradual and reformist elements in abolitionism, ultimately it was the revolutionaries that pushed things forward, right? Um, and they did not make compromises with slavery. They were not trying to, um, you know, 
gradually reform and make slavery a better institution and more humane, right? They fought, they risked their lives um, and they challenged slavery. And I think in that way, looking at reconstruction, uh, civil, civil war, uh, war specifically is really also important for a new generation of race traders, right? And uh, who, you know, did not sit by as allies, right? But they actually co, co fought as co-conspirators, right? They fought alongside. Uh, they too took risks, and I think that's a really important thing. Um, that you know, that a revolutionary is not, you know, somebody who's going to go on Twitter and I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's an important part of it, right? But revolutionaries actually take risks, make sacrifices, um, sometimes lose things. Um, so I don't know, I think these are just like really important provocations um, as more and more people are being politicized by the all the crap that constantly seems to keep coming at us, right? I think um, especially that last section on dual power and kind of revisiting the lessons of abolition, uh, of abolitionism uh, could point a way forward. Yeah, and, and wrapping up uh, both of your remarks, right, connecting them, um, he, he describes, uh, following Du Bois's writing on, on Reconstruction, he describes the situation in, uh, you know, initially in the Reconstruction South as a revolutionary situation of dual power in which recently enslaved people were in charge of rewriting the Constitution of some of these states. And um, he also makes the remark that, you know, thank God there were abolitionists who were active during this time and not the kind of diversity consultants you see today because there still would be slavery, um, which I think is a, a really great line that it both, it both, both points out that, um, you know, these, these politics around race, although they're usually, uh, you know, they, they could be very well-meaning uh, if we're not ready to take them to a, to a revolutionary extent to like really look at how we can break down the, the racial order in, in a way that uh, doesn't just leave the white supremacist structure intact. We're kind of just going to reiterate it in like kinder and gentler or more subtle ways. And um, especially as white privilege, you know, has sort of, I, I feel like the idea of white privilege has crested in the activist mm -hmm. left. And now it's become kind of cringy to talk about white privilege because it's become associated with this kind of diversity training buzzword or rhetoric. And so right. yeah. um, reading Noel and especially reading a lot of his predecessors in the black radical tradition, we can understand that this question of white privilege is a material category and it's necessary for understanding the material foundations of white supremacy. And I would like to add one thing to that. I think that's really great. Um, I think like that, like one thing from uh, the white blind spots that's persistent throughout all his thinking about race um, is that right of all the struggles in which a popular victory would fatally weaken U.S. capitalism, the fight against white supremacy is one of the greatest, is, is the one with the greatest chance of success. So I think that this emphasis on fighting white supremacy in the United States is a strategic choice, not just a moral thing. And the, the reason it's a strategic choice is that, it, that, will, that he argues it will fatal, uh, fatally weaken U.S. capitalism. And that's the goal. Yes. Hell yes. All right. Thanks a lot for joining me, Jana and Geert. Um, it's a great book. And, and Geert, there's a uh, release event uh, tomorrow, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, uh, tomorrow in Brooklyn. Do you want to give us the details on that? 
Yes, is at the bookstore. The word is change uh, on Tompkins Avenue in Bed-Stuy uh, in Brooklyn. It's at 7 p.m. and I will be there with John Garvey to talk about uh, the treason to whiteness is loyal to the humanity book. And I'm really looking forward to that, forward to that event. Awesome. Yeah. So please pick up the book from Verso. It's out now. And we will be back behind the paywall to talk a little bit more about some of the more controversial or uh, maybe even silly things that Noel said, including um, about being a reverse Oreo or uh, the uh, the W word. And of course, Rachel Dolezal. So become a subscriber at patreon.com slash the Antifada if you want to hear that and history is a weapon and all of our bonus content. Uh, thanks a lot. Have a good night, guys.